So diving right in, using the obvious one as an It's okay, I'm here for you. Use your words. Deep breath. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 15th episode of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach here in New York City, and I am joined once again by my co-host, Abby Wilde. What's up today, Abby? Not much. I have been sick as a dog all week. I'm really happy to see that the sun is still shining now that I've left my apartment. Oh, uh, the sun is somewhat shining. It's a way too cold day for a May 15th here in New York City. I know, it's delightful. But I did train a client today in the cold, who was clearly cold most of the time, but I told him that, well, marathon trainers, marathon runners train in the cold, so... Were you training him for a marathon? I was not training him for a marathon, but Hamlet is a marathon. Uh, Isn't that what they say about Hamlet? They also say that Hamlet is six speeches united by filler. Yeah, mm. yeah, never thought about that. Mm. Anyway. Moving on. Pick yes. a moment. So... I'm opening with a new segment called How Now? What News? And that is a segment in which we talk about the news. Shakespeare-related news. Don't go away. Yes. So, um, the first thing I wanted to, to bring up is uh, a little bit of a, a podcast thing. Um, so, those of you who have frequented this podcast for a while may have heard the episode... Uh, episode 10, in which Rebecca Scallett of Arkansas Shakespeare Theatre came on to talk with me about Two Gentlemen of Verona. Well, apparently, the Arkansas Shakespeare Theatre just received a $10,000 grant to support their Pay What You Can Midsummer Night's Dream production, and in order to help expand its touring show to underserved and rural areas uh in the state in an effort to bring live professional theater to those who may not otherwise have the chance to experience it. So, during their 10th anniversary season, the Arkansas Shakespeare Theater has been awarded a well-deserved $10,000 grant, and I just wanted to take this moment to give a special shout-out and congratulations to friend of the podcast, Rebecca Scallett. Congratulations, that's amazing. Congrats. Um, next item of news... So, there has been an app created in part by uh, Ian McKellen in collaboration with uh, Sir Jonathan Bates and The Art in Shakespeare, uh, in which they are creating 37 different apps, one for each of the Shakespeare plays, to better help students in schools or wherever understand Shakespeare's plays. Uh, and the one that has been uh, launched already is about the Tempest, which makes me wonder if they're starting in reverse order and right, going yeah. back. Yeah, It's a weird one to start with. Mm -hmm. Well, but it also is a difficult one to understand, so... Yeah, and also, I mean, it's the one that's the most often held up as an allegory for Shakespeare's life, Shakespeare as Prospero, Shakespeare as the creator, so it's also kind of a cool place to start if part of the, if, if part of the um, purpose of the app is to introduce students to the world of Shakespeare. The Tempest mm -hmm. is a neat window into him biographically. Yeah, certainly. Um, so basically, like the goal of this Shakespeare app is, I, I think uh, Sir Ian McKellen says that so many students in schools have trouble 
identifying with Shakespeare and finding a passion for Shakespeare because Shakespeare is not meant to be read. It is meant to be seen. Shakespeare mm -hmm. wrote the plays for the stage, not for books. And so many times in schools, these kids are forced to read Shakespeare and they hate it because they don't see it being brought to life by trained actors. Absolutely. Well, lucky for you, listeners, <laughs> Ian McKellen and Jonathan Bate and The Arden have created this app that has so many different wonderful features. Um, the app includes, uh, this is taken directly from a news article on CNET.com. Um, the app includes such features as the full text of The Tempest, as published in the first folio, a digital version of the Arden Shakespeare Tempest, including full notes and commentary, a linked historical timeline of Shakespeare's life, plays, and historical context, and explanations of every character with a visual rundown of all their lines across the scenes. App users can also see the Tempest at a glance with illustrations and summaries to explain the plot with key quotes and events. They can check out a history of all the major productions of The Tempest from the 17th century to the current day. Wow. And take advantage of the ability to jot down exportable notes and highlight and copy text. Best of all, you can watch a cast of professional Shakespearean actors, which includes McKellen, performing the play. The app also includes video talks by both McKellen and Professor Bate on characters, themes, and the overall play. So... Basically, what this app is doing is revolutionizing Shakespeare study. It is like spark notes on steroids with video. It's like a short-term Tempest intensive course in the palm of your hand. Yes. Um, and what I'm most excited about, which should surprise nobody who knows me, is that it provides uh, the ardent text of the Tempest, I think you said, with the full footnotes. And if you haven't mm. had the chance to glance inside an ardent edition of Shakespeare, they're amazing. You can flip to any page and really... a third of the page will be the text and the bottom two thirds will be amazingly helpful footnotes of historical context of uh of, of glossing information of uh connections to other plays they're i think the most useful educational tools for exploring shakespeare's mm. plays well and i would like to give a shout out to the art in shakespeare real quick because during every podcast we've done together Abby and I have frequently used the large amount of Arden Shakespeare books under my desk and mm -hmm. on my bookshelf. So we use the resources for this podcast and for our own research in our plays and everything. Very much so. We're surrounded by Ardens at all times. So, uh, so I can't. I can't even fathom how having the entire Shakespearean library on my phone will revolutionize these practices. Now, here's my question. Um, I mean, I, you know, we're going about this from the perspective of, I think, the average, the average person for whom most of their iOS and Android purposes are from their phone, which is your mobile computing device on a day-to-day -day basis. But do you think that this is more possibly aimed towards, uh, towards the high-capacity tablet market for those who carry those around mm, for study and use? That's interesting because I just, I looked it up now on my phone mm -hmm. and I can't find it on my phone. It's very possible that it is like a high def day. I mean, because it's a lot of video content, right? Right. You don't want to watch that on the yeah. six-inch screen. Well, and that might be another reason that they have it each in a separate app is because there is a certain like download limit. I think you have to be connected to Wi-Fi in order to download anything greater than 100 megabytes. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're trying to make it so that each app individually 
takes up less space on your phone. Potentially. Yes. Now, I think the question that always gets asked when recordings of live performances are made readily available is, will this uh, lessen the likelihood that people will go out and buy tickets to live performances? I, for one, think not. No. I think that this is uh, that this is made to cover the need of those who can't buy a ticket and go out to see a production of The Tempest mm -hmm. the moment they need to see a production of The Tempest because, regrettably, productions of The Tempest are not running in your neighborhood at all times. Nope, they're not. They, I've tried to find them. They will one day, <laughs> but not this day. Um, and a live performance is such a different experience than, uh, than, than a video on your phone. Um, I'm fascinated to see if this is going to be the beginning of uh, the trend towards, you know, that sci-fi conceit of, of live performances moving from outside venues into a virtual reality that you access from the safety of your bedroom. Ooh, quick note. We should make a podcast subject uh, in a future podcast about live streaming Shakespeare through cell phones and what advantage that could bring to the Shakespeare community. Yes, yes, I'm totally on board to talk about that. Cool. Well, we are going to move on to the next segment because we have talked about the news long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing we are going to do is a new segment called Curious Passage. Um, and in this segment, Abby and I discuss a curious passage in Shakespeare's one of Shakespeare's plays. Now, Kyle, when you say curious passage, what do you mean by curious? By that, I mean a passage in one of Shakespeare's plays that, to me, seems a bit unusual. Not impossible, but something that seems very interesting to me. Something that caught my attention, and when I read it, I saw, or I thought, what is this? So is it something that you feel is extraneous to the main action of the plot, perhaps? Or something that you feel would be hard, would be difficult to immediately justify for an actor? Yes. And uh, difficult for the audience to immediately understand, if not done correctly. Just something that I, I saw and I was like, huh, that's interesting. We should delve into this. Fair enough. And so today... I picked a passage from Romeo and Juliet, and the passage is as follows. If you would like to read this with me, I will read the nurse's lines, and you will read Lady Capulet and Juliet. Um, so, basically, I, I, many of us have heard this before. It's the, the part where the nurse in, in Romeo and Juliet is recounting the events of Juliet as a child. Mm -hmm. And... Um, there's just something that happened that she's so struck by that she's telling this this wonderfully long story. And at the end of the line, um, she says, God be with his soul, and was a merry man, took up the child. Yea, quoth he, dost thou fall upon thy face? Thou wilt fall backwards when thou hast more wit, wilt thou not, Jewel? And by my holidame, the pretty wretch left crying and said, I... To see now how a jest shall come about. I warrant, and I should live a thousand years, I never should forget it. Wilt thou not, Jewel? quoth he. And pretty fool, it stinted and said, I. Enough of this. I pray thee, hold thy peace. Yes, madam. Yet I cannot choose but laugh, to think it should leave crying and say, I. And yet, I warrant, it had upon its brow a bump as big as a young cockerel's stone. 
a parlous knock, and it cried bitterly, Yea, quoth my husband, falst upon thy face, thou wilt fall backward when thou comest to age. Wilt thou not, Jewel? It stinted and said, I. And stint thou too, I pray thee, nurse, say I. Peace, I have done. God mark thee to this grace. Thou wast the prettiest babe that e'er I nursed, and I might live to see thee married once I have my wish. So the... I, I just find it fascinating that even though everybody's like, shut up, nurse, mm -hmm. the nurse has to keep telling this story. Like, and clearly they all know this story in the room. This seems right. like this is a story that's been told multiple times. And the nurse just comes about like, oh, by the way, you remember that one thing we always talk about where this child did this? It's so funny. And then Lady Capulet comes out and says, look, nurse, shut up for whatever reason, like, you know, we've all heard this story before, or you've been going on with this way too long. Whatever it is, she says, hold thy peace. Then the nurse says, okay, yes. But I'm still laughing, and I have to repeat what I just said again to you. You know, I've this is a passage that uh, when I first read Romeo and Juliet, when I was maybe 14 or 15, this is always where I would check out of the play because it just made no sense to me. But now that, <laughs> now that I'm older, it's... It's, it's, it's just, I find it so endearingly humanizing of these characters and their relationships. First, I should say, uh, for the listening audience, if you're having trouble glossing that passage, it, uh, it, it's all based on the joke of the nurse's husband telling the three-year-old Jewel that she will fall backwards when she has more wit. Fall backwards is an Elizabethan uh, idiom that means um, to fall on her back because she's having sex. So the joke, the idea of this toddler stopping and going, Yes, I will do that, is what would be hilarious to the grown-ups. Mm. But it also plays on the levels of, you know, anytime you see... So now that, I've had, now, now that I've had the privilege of hanging out with my friends' small children and watching them grow from being babies to being toddlers to being kids, there's um, something so remarkable and gigantic and sweet and nostalgic about looking at a child and seeing them as a baby at the same time mm. and how that seems to have just happened yesterday and happened so long ago. So what I love about this passage is that Nurse is clearly is, is clearly so maternal towards Juliet and so overwhelmed with her love of this child and her complete scope of this child's life um, that to bring up this moment and to be kind of... And yes, it probably is a story that she's told a million and six times mm -hmm. before. But uh, that she's, she's so... She contains within her the whole history of Juliet. And it sets up their relationship in a really fascinating way when you see what the nurse is going to do for her later. You understand, I think, I think it helps you, I think it helps you understand the nurse's relationship to Juliet and how that motivates her to take the action she takes in the play. Sure. And it also helps you motive. it helps you understand the tragedy of how the nurse reacts to this situation. The pathos of what the nurse must be feeling as Juliet goes through all of these terrible things as the play goes on. Sure, and something that she feels so strongly that not only does she have to tell the story, but she has to 
tell the story again after she's been told to shut up. Sure. And like, <laughs> like I think we've all been at a Thanksgiving dinner where we some have a older relative, relative yes. has been like, hey, remember that time you did that totally embarrassing thing that you don't actually remember because you were two? And you have to sit there and go, yes, <laughs> yes, I know the story. I, you know, please shut up. Shut up. Shut please up, shut Grandpa. Up. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh. And you did this and I you know. did this. No, please stop. <laughs> oh, God. Every... <laughs> Every um, holiday, I go back to visit my grandparents on my father's side. My grandfather always asks me if I'm still pole vaulting. And granted, I haven't pole vaulted in, I think, nine years now, like uh-huh. since my senior year of high school. But my grandpa still somehow is always like somehow secretly hopeful that that I have gone back and that I am pole vaulting again. Oh, (laughs) so sweet. Yeah, my grandmother uh, used to always ask my older brother if his favorite movie was still The Little Mermaid. It was when he was four. But she was asking him this question when he was 16. Mm. And yes. (laughs) So yeah, it's... The nurse is one of those those characters that just has so much love for Juliet that this brings her such joy. Maybe even just the act of... Telling the story is what brings her joy, whether anybody has any reaction to it or not, or just completely independent of other people's reactions. The joy of telling this story to people is enough for her to ignore everybody else's needs and keep saying the story out loud. Totally. And I mean, and this is the scene where Lady Capulet first broaches the subject of Juliet marrying Paris. Um, And I think that like this is if, if you've ever been if you've ever been to a wedding there's always this point where the mother or father of the bride especially i think in my experience but also of the groom will will say to their child oh my you're still my little baby it feels mm. like yesterday it feels like yesterday you were falling down and crying while i yeah. held you and now you're walking down the aisle it's i think that i think that the nurse's speech in this scene is actually such like a contemporary and timeless moment now that i think of it yeah interesting great well, the subject, the main subject of today's podcast, or the headline subject of today's podcast, or whatever, whatever we want to call it, is Deus Ex Machina in Shakespeare. Um, and the reason I wanted to discuss this today is because, as you like it, is is famously known for having that Deus Ex Machina at the end, which we will get into in a bit. But there's also a couple other instances of Deus Ex Machina in Shakespeare, and a couple of other, a couple of plays where. There might be a deus ex machina, and I wanted to examine with my good friend Abby whether or not we can describe the ending as an actual deus ex machina or whether mm-hmm. it's something else. So before we dive into the uh, before we dive into deus ex machina as it explain as it relates to Shakespeare, can we talk a little bit about the history of the phrase deus ex machina? Yes. And Why don't what... you give us a little rundown on that? I absolutely can. Deus ex machina is a Latin appropriation of a Greek phrase that literally means god from the machine and it was used to refer to the device that happens in greek tragedy when the character of a god will appear on stage literally from a mechanical device such as rising out of the stage on a riser or descending out from the top of the stage via uh, wires or ropes the god would appear on stage at these moments almost exclusively to mete out punishments to the wrongdoers and rewards to the heroes to reset the status quo of the world of the play And so from that, we've gotten the modern definition of the phrase deus ex machina, which means anytime an event happens in a play or story or TV show or artistic uh, expression of any kind, where by a sudden and unrelated plot device, all is set right in the world. (laughs) 
Uh, a deus ex machina that you might be uh, familiar with if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings. If you have not seen or read Lord of the Rings and you're saving it, pause right now and come back in a few minutes. A famous deus ex machina from the end of Lord of the Rings is when Gandalf arrives you know on what? the okay. eagles. Hold, hold. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings yet, and we're giving you spoilers, you, you deserve the spoilers, okay? If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings by now... It is past the spoiler point. Hey, 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 I respect the sanctity of the spoiler. I'm just saying. So, but a famous, a deus ex machina that you might be aware of is when uh, it seems, is when Frodo and Sam throw the ring into Mount Doom and the world is coming down around them and they look like they're going to die there on top of the mountain and there's nothing that can save them and suddenly Gandalf descends out of the sky on a gigantic eagle and lifts them up and flies them back to the safety of Rivendell. But is that entirely unrelated to the plot? Like, is that enough to be called a deus ex machina, whereas it's just like out of nowhere something happens? Because Gandalf was part of the, the plot of the, the movie earlier, yes? It's uh, Gandalf and the Eagles were both part of the plot of the movie earlier. I think the thing that makes it a deus ex machina is that it raises important questions such as why couldn't they get on the Eagles at the beginning and fly to Mount Doom and drop off the rings in the first place? Mm -hmm. Why were the Eagles not available until now? And if you're a nerd like me, you've read the appendices and you know why the Eagles weren't available until just then, why it would have been a terrible idea for the Eagles to fly into Mordor in the first place and that they had to walk because they had to be hiding under the cover of darkness. Nevertheless... It very conveniently solves the problem. I think that you get into trouble uh, if you're too strictly adherent to the idea that a deus ex machina has to be completely and utterly unrelated to the plot to be a deus ex machina. I got you. I think, de <laughs> I think a deus ex machina is uh, one of those things that you, you don't know exactly how to define it, but you, see, you know it when you see it. Sure. So I guess the conclusion that we've reached is that when looking at a deus ex machina, you have to just consider that Something kind of out of nowhere, something very surprising is just happening that in the midst of a really tangled up plot just sort of makes everything better again. The, the example that comes to mind is um, Alexander the Great and the Gorgon Knot. Is that what it's called? The Gordian Knot. Yeah. The Gordian Knot, yes. So um, basically this story is there's this, this Gordian Knot that nobody can untie and whoever unties it will become king or become great or something or other and everybody's trying to untie this giant ball of of string and it's impossible and then alexander the great comes sees the knot looks at it for a second takes the sword and just slices it in half and everybody's like well crap now right. they, that just solved everything and it's by the use of a sword which was that's unexpected i don't think that that's a deus ex mach or i've never thought that was a deus ex machina before now i don't think that it is well but that's how, how i think think of it i'm not saying that that's a deus ex machina but that's something comes in there's this plot that's tangled up and then alexander the great comes with a sword and just slices it apart and makes everything better again it's an uh, unexpected solution to every problem that exists on the stage and it seemingly comes out of nowhere i gotcha all right i'm following that allegory i'm picking up what you're putting down so if we're jumping into as you like it as you like it um Basically, the Duke Frederick is kind of this, like, tyrant power figure who gets angry at, at people. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but he, he gets angry at his daughter and at, at another, his brother, the Duke, uh, Duke Senior. And just all, he banishes people to the forest. Like, that's his thing. He just banishes people to the forest. So, like, <laughs> the beginning of the play and before the action of the play takes place. 
And then all these people are just living out there in the forest of Arden, having a good old jolly time. And, you know, there's, there's all these subplots with, you know, Philby, Phoebe and... And there, there, there's a certain number of other plots that plays very episodic. But one thing that happens at the end is that everybody's sort of in the forest and a bunch of people are about to get married. And then this random third brother, like there are two brothers in the play, Orlando and Oliver, that we know about. But then suddenly, randomly at the end of the play, it's like, oh, hi, I'm their third brother. And by the way, I have news. The Duke Frederick discovered religion. And now everybody's allowed back in town and life is perfect again. Wow. And that's what it is. It's just this crazy, seemingly out of nowhere thing where it's like, oh, by the way, I'm somebody you never heard about, and the Duke Frederick is religious, and now everybody's unbanished. And that's funny because it's it's very much poking fun at Deus Ex Machina because the Deus Ex Machina is that he's discovered God. Um, yeah. You know? Um, but that brings up an interesting point, which is that I think that Shakespeare uses letters a lot to be his Deus Ex Machina, that there's a certain sanctity of, there's a certain sanctity of messengers. Messengers mm-hmm. never lie. They always tell the truth, and very often... They bring the news that solves everything. Another time when this happens is at the very end of Merchant of Venice, after the big courtroom scene where Portia has used her legal knowledge and her uh, her ability to convincingly wear pants to get Antonio out of his uh, out of out of his bond with Shylock and save his life. And Shylock has been punished for seeking the life of a Christian, and he's had all of his goods taken away from him, and he's been forced to convert to Christianity, which we will talk about another time. Uh, Portia comes back to Belmont where Shylock's daughter and her husband are waiting in exile and they're poor and penniless because Shylock has taken everything and Antonio is penniless because all of his boats have crashed on the rocks and uh, Portia comes back to Belmont reveals herself to Antonio and Bassanio and reveals to Antonio by the way Six of your ships have mysteriously been found. You're restored to wealth. I have it in this letter. And she has this great line where she says, you will not know how I have come by this letter. Like, (laughs) I'm not even going to bother explaining why I know this or how it happens to be known. Good job, Shakespeare. Right? Right. Sometimes Shakespeare just doesn't even bother to... Shakespeare just leans into the fact that he's going to solve his plays through nonsense. (laughs) So then... One of the other plays we talked about is Measure for Measure, as Mm. far as the possibility of a deus ex machina. So would you care to explain a little bit about that one? Right. So Measure for Measure. It's been a minute since I've read that one, so please excuse me if I get my details a little fuzzy. We do not excuse anybody for inaccuracy on this podcast. I repent nothing. Uh, Measure for Measure begins with the Duke deciding that he's tired of ruling, he's going to go away, he's going to deputize Angelo to be in charge of town while he's gone. Angelo takes this power and abuses it. He imposes strict strictures over the town, and he falls in love with a nun, Isabella. And Isabella's brother is in jail and about to be put to death. So Angelo tells Isabella, I will pardon your brother and save his life if you'll sleep with me. So Isabella is in a terrible bind. She has to decide, is she going to give up her vows of chastity and her honor to this man to save her brother's life, Or is it going to give up her brother's life to save her chastity and her honor? It's a conundrum. It's a Gordian knot. And suddenly, the Duke comes back disguised as a friar. And he turns up and he takes over the play. And for the next two acts, starts arranging things in such a way that Isabella's honor will be saved, that her brother's life will be saved, and that Angelo will get his just desserts. 
And uh, much like in All's Well That Ends Well, be forced to marry the woman to whom he was previously betrothed, whose honor he has already thrown away. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that this definitely has elements of deus ex machina. One, because the play could not be solved if the Duke hadn't decided conveniently to come back mm-hmm. and announce to the audience uh, that he was never going to go away in the first place, that he actually just set all of this up to test Angelo, which is questionable that he would put so many people's lives in danger for the purpose of testing this one man. That's pretty deus ex machina to me. It's also deus ex machina because he comes back dressed as a man of God. So I think that I'm sure Shakespeare knew what he was doing with that. I think that when Shakespeare used deus ex machina, he was aware of it. So then what we're getting at really is that a deus ex machina is an unlikely event mm-hmm. more than anything else. Like that's the core of it. The deus ex machina is an unlikely event that either restores a status quo or brings us a happy ending that would be difficult to obtain otherwise. And this, these unlikely events have very little explanation to yeah. them most of the time. Like, for example, and As You Like It, it's, oh, hey, the Duke found religion. Yeah. And they don't really explain how. They just say he went out in the forest one day and he was angry and he discovered religion. So it's... It's an unlikely event with little explanation that solves a problem or solves a series of problems. So what I want to bring up then is my favorite Shakespeare play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Ah. Yes. So this may or may not be a deus ex machina, but I want us to banter about it anyway and discover whether it could be considered one. Um, The end of Two Gentlemen of Verona, which I have brought up and discussed at length and on other episodes of this podcast, particularly with Rebecca Scallett mm-hmm. um, a few months back. At the end of the play, so Proteus um, has been seeing this girl, Julia, and then Valentine discovers this girl, Sylvia. And then when Valentine talks about Sylvia to Proteus, Proteus is like, wow, that girl sounds amazing. And he goes and sees her and falls in love with her. Basically, and he's got this whole struggle like, oh my gosh, well, how am I going to love Sylvia and still be friends with Valentine? That's going to be tough. And plus, I'm screwing Julia over, and that stinks too. Uh, but he, he, events transpire. I won't get into the entire thick of the plot of the play. But at the end, Proteus basically attempts to rape Sylvia on stage. He's like, I have to have her now. And... It just goes for it. Mm-hmm. And they get... Like, there, there is a physical fight that breaks out as a result of it. And then, all of a sudden, like, laying there after being struck by Valentine, Proteus is like, Oh, dude. I'm sorry, man. And then Valentine's like, Yo. I forgive you, bro. <laughs> and my, my question is, is... Either the sudden apology and remorse of Proteus or the seemingly divine forgiveness of Valentine are either of those a deus ex machina? Because the actor has to make it clear somehow that it is that it is organic and that this has come out of something. Like, that's an actor's responsibility and I've discussed that before. But is, is this forgiveness really easily enough to explain through human nature or is it a gift from god i don't think it's a deus ex machina and i'll tell you why 
if a deus ex machina is an unlikely event that occurs on the stage in order to restore the status quo of the world of the play, then certainly Proteus's uh, sudden remorse uh, is that unlikely event. And you could play it as a deus ex machina if you made that remorse as genuine as possible. Or used special effects to imply that he was suddenly struck by a divine vision you know that's an interesting way to solve the problem with that play i mean kind of cheap but right (laughs) but you could also make the argument that proteus's remorse is not genuine that it's more that proteus finds himself in uh he is back in the world of the play i mean proteus finds spends the entire play trying to reorganize circumstances such to allow him to get what he wants he banishes valentine he pretends Julia is dead so that he can stop having feelings about her. Proteus does a lot to get what he wants, and in the end of the play, when Valentine returned, it's almost like telling him, dude, you can do as much as you want, but Valentine will always still be there. Your your obligations to Valentine and ergo your obligations to society will always be there. If Proteus suddenly, in those like four lines, embraces that and has a full reformation, I think that's a deus ex machina. Mm -hmm. But I'm not entirely convinced that he does. Valentine's forgiveness of him is not a deus ex machina. Valentine's forgiveness of him is, I think, evidence of Shakespeare's ongoing conversation in many of his plays of the conflict between romance and bromance. Mm, Which... We will get into a later episode of the podcast. Yes, we By the way, I looked up definition of deus ex machina on Google, and we, just by bantering and speculating, have gotten remarkably close to what Google actually believes to be the definition of deus ex machina, which is an unexpected power or event saving a seemingly hopeless situation, especially as a contrived plot device in a play or novel. Which brings me to, I think, my favorite Shakespearean deus ex machina, because it's actually one that he uses twice. And uh, it's when he gets his characters into an impossible situation, and then he has pirates come on stage. This happens in Pericles when Marina is about to be assassinated. Suddenly, he has the stage direction, enter pirates, and pirates swarm the stage and abduct Marina and take her away. And the assassin is left going... I guess I'll pull a Snow White and tell the evil queen that I did my job, even though I didn't, because, I mean, the pirates are probably going to murder her, right? Right. So there's the first pirate ex machina. Mm. Um, The second pirate ex machina is, I think, the more famous... Yeah, pirate ex machina. Pith and Moment brought it to you first. Pirate ex machina. I think we found the title of our podcast, ladies and gentlemen. This will be the new Oxford English Dictionary phrase of the year next year. Pirate ex machina happens in Hamlet when, uh, in the middle of the play, Hamlet has murdered Polonius. Hamlet has staged his play within a play. He's, he's murdered Polonius. He's staging anti-government propaganda. Uh, Claudius is fearing for his life. He's been acting insane. He's been abusing Ophelia. So Claudius banishes him to England and sends him off with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are bearing a letter to the King of England that says, um, that says, uh, when you read this letter, please have Hamlet put to death. So Hamlet goes away. A couple scenes later, Hamlet comes back and tells Horatio, oh yeah, all of that was going to happen, but A, I I found the letter and I changed the word so that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern will be put to death, and B, we were attacked by pirates, I made friends with them, and they brought me back to Denmark. Mm -hmm. Like, how unlikely is that, that 
out of all of the oceans of the world, not only would Hamlet's ship be the one attacked by pirates, but that he would be the one ship attacked by pirates who would be friendly to his cause and take him back home without ransoming, ransoming him. You know, ransoming? And, ransoming. That, that brings me back to this definition. The, the phrase that gets me here is seemingly hopeless situation. Right. I mean... We, we talked about earlier, like, the, the Gordian knot is mm -hmm. a seemingly impossible knot to untie. And then something that's almost kind of cheating comes in and solves the problem. And so, the deus ex machina really is just something we use to describe a plot twist that doesn't make much sense to us. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it almost seems like us covering for either poor writing or poor interpretation of the writing in, in our own place. Like, we talked about with Two Gentlemen of Verona, how, like, well, yeah, it's unlikely, but if the actors do their job enough and if sure. the characters are developed enough by the actors, then then it can make sense, and it doesn't have to be a, an unexpected or unlikely event. It is something that is surprising yet inevitable. It stems from something that the actors and the directors have already created. Like just like the Duke Frederick, if if there is something, anything in the in the beginning of the play to sort of imply that, I don't know, through blocking or stage directions or something that he becomes just slightly interested in a Bible, like if there's a Bible on stage, like right the last time you see Duke Frederick when he's like beating the crap out of Oliver, right? If you see Duke Frederick beat the crap out of Oliver, Oliver leaves and then. Duke Frederick walks past a nightstand, and there's a Bible that he bumps off, and then he picks the Bible up, and he's like, what? <laughs> then, then we see that hint, and then it can sort of help that event later in the play not come out of nowhere. Sure. As most productions have been, and certainly every production I've been in or seen of As You Like It, it does come out of nowhere, which makes it this deus ex machina. But if we can find a way through the creation of play of a production of one of Shakespeare's plays to make that ending seem like it comes out of something instead of coming out of nothing, we can't call it a deus ex machina. Do you think that deus ex machina is ever used as a positive statement? When you see a play and you go, oh, that was a total deus ex machina, are you ever, are you ever saying, wow, that was clever? I'm not. No, it when seems I say, lazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. This next section will probably be cut out of the podcast, but I can't not make the connection because while we're talking about this, I'm flashing back to a scene from one of my favorite novels slash movies, Misery by Stephen King, in which the character of Annie Wilkes has this long, long story that she tells about having seen a, a movie when she was a young kid, but they always end in cliffhangers. And there was a cliffhanger that ended with the hero going off of the cliff in a car with locked doors and he's banging on the locked doors. He can't get out, he can't get out. The car plunges into the ocean. So they're left thinking, oh my God, how did he get out? How did he get out? How did he get out? The next episode starts with that character standing on a cliff watching the car go into the ocean and she was incensed that's not fair you can't have that happen you have to make it true you mm -hmm. have to make it real i bring this up because i think that deus ex machina is uh the phrase that we use instead of saying well that's not fair yeah don't you think so that's not fair or that's not right you know like if we're looking at i mean 
okay, so this is making me question our conversation about measure for measure yeah. because the Duke, like he's introduced in like the third act again, right? Or the third or fourth act. Something so like that. it doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere that he reveals himself and takes everything over again. He has sort of been working the situation. It in- does and it doesn't though, because it becomes a completely different play when he comes back as, as, as marked by the fact that the dialogue goes from verse to prose. Yeah. Yep. Completely. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Go no, on. no, you're right. It, it's just all of this is making me think more and more that we use the phrase deus ex machina as an excuse to describe laziness, right? Deus ex machina is this giant sham, as I'm thinking about it. it everything, But, like, if you can make something make sense, right? If you can make something seem organic and and coming out of stuff that you've built already then you can explain it, or, or at least the audience can understand it, right? But if it's something that is just unlikely and solves a seemingly hopeless situation by a seemingly unlikely or impossible event, then we say, oh, deus ex machina, because it's just weird. But we accept it by putting the label deus ex machina on it. So are you saying that uh, deus ex machina is a label we should do away with because it's covering up our actual feelings, which are, that's not fair? I'm not saying we should do away with it, but I am saying that we should be able to see through it. Yes and no. I think that deus ex machina is, uh, is not fair, but that doesn't mean that it's not good. I think that deus ex machina has, no, I think deus ex machina has literary and dramatic value when it is satisfying when it is in keeping with the message of the play. I think that, for instance, I'm going to go back to my favorite example, the deus ex machina at the end of The Lord of the Rings is an allegory for um, the restoration of the order of the universe. And it's an allegory for, I mean, Tolkien was great friends with C.S. Lewis. I think it's uh, an allegory for divine grace and mercy at the end of a struggle i think but that's the key word though divine yeah right are you saying then that oh this is a great conversation are you saying then that divinity when it pops up in drama or literature uh lessens the value of the drama or literature oh that's tough then because then we're getting into religion and not necessarily. Not necessarily. We don't need to get into uh, religion to get into the idea that when human struggles are solved by divine intervention, does that make the human struggles less valid? I think it gives less credit to the fact that human beings work hard to solve their own issues, right? If a divine something comes out and solves a problem out of nowhere, then it lessens the character's credibility and strength and complexity. Right? Because we don't see them work through their own issue. We see it be miraculously solved. Like, when, whenever <laughs> I've seen or been on stage for a production of As You Like It, mm-hmm. going back to that, at sure. the end, when Jaquiz Du Bois, or Jake Du Bois, or whatever we want to pronounce his name as, the third brother, when he comes out and says, Hey, you guys, I'm third brother. And Duke Frederick, this mean guy, discovered religion and we're all saved. I go... Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. And so many movies, like, when you're, I mean, have you ever watched a bad movie? Like, of course you've watched a bad movie, but think of the worst movie, listeners, you do this too, think of the worst movie you've ever seen where something happens, like, around the end of the movie, or even somewhere in the middle, if you really want, and think of a time when you said, oh, come on, really? Like, come on. That's what 
I, I think of Deus Ex Machina as now. And I'm not saying there's not a value in the allegory of a divine event, but I'm also saying that it it takes away from the human experience of their struggles uh, unless they have a very human reaction to the divine event that's interesting for us as an audience to watch. I see that and I hear that. I think though that there are two sides. I think that deus ex machina is probably most often used and I think most often remembered by us as um, what you are saying, as the oh come on moment where the plot is the, the plot is just solved done yes. completely taken care of and i'm saying that i don't like that good now. but i think that there are moments of deus ex machina where it is a relief and where it is in where it is called for and allowed okay but fair enough i think it should be used i think it should be used sparingly but i yes. think that when deus ex machina is used well it is a good thing cool well we've been on this subject long enough that was um, no fun at all <laughs> the next um segment today is Shakespearean text database and those of you who have listened to the podcast know that this is a segment in which we use open source Shakespeare which is a wonderful resource where you can search all the text of all of Shakespeare's plays for keywords you can sort by play character etc and just derive some fun conclusions from it which is what we enjoy doing with it since we're talking about deus ex machina, we thought it would be interesting to see how many characters take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, and in so doing, we checked three very specific words. The three most godly, the three most commonly, when you think of Elizabethan swears, I think the word you probably think of the most often is zounds, sometimes spelled Z-O-U-N-D-S, sometimes spelled swounds, S-W-O-U-N-D-S. And what does that mean, Abby? It means God's wounds, referring to the wounds that Jesus Christ sustained while crucified on the cross, Kyle. Uh, one more word that we added was splud, which refers to the same event. And so that would mean that splud is short for God's blood. Correct. Is it Splud or Zblood? Um, I think that that's a dealer's choice. Great. Cool. So we will leave that up to the dealer and not try to interpret that too specifically. But what we did was we discovered which of Shakespeare's plays have the most uh, instances of these swear words, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, and what we discovered is that, well, why don't we start from the back end? So... So the majority of his plays have no mentions of swoons, zoons, or splud, which frankly I found baffling because I think that when one is parodying Shakespeare or one is doing improv in the Shakespeare style, there's only so long you can go without somebody declaiming zoons at the top of their lungs. But in fact, uh, zoons only, uh, zoons, swoons, and blood only popped up in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of his plays, and they're all histories and tragedies. Mm-hmm. So at the back end, uh, we have tied for last for last place Henry V, Titus Andronicus, and King John. Henry V had one mention of Splud, Titus had one mention of Zunes, and King John had one mention of Zunes. Cool. So moving towards the plays with uh, the most instances of these words, the next tied for third place, or let's say tied for fifth place, I guess, are Romeo and Juliet. Just Romeo and Juliet in third, third oh, cool. from the top. So I'm going to start that over. Yeah. So 
moving back up the list in ascending order uh, most appearances of these words, we have Romeo and Juliet with two instances of zunes, both by Mercutio, mm-hmm. I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then tied for second place on the list are Hamlet, Richard III, and Othello. And these each have three instances of these swear words. But what is... Actually, so- four. They have... Uh, Othello has zunes and one blood. Richard Third has four zunes. And Hamlet has two zunes and two bloods. Two wounds and two bloods. That's the name of my uh, bluegrass band. <laughs> so two wounds and two bloods. The most fascinating, I don't want to say mind-blowing, but the most interesting thing to me about this list is not just which play came in first, but just by how much it came in first. Henry IV, Part One, has eight instances of the word blood. And 10 instances of the word zunes, marking a total of 18 appearances of these swear words. It's way out in front. And guess who is responsible for most of these swears? I'm I'm going to guess it's John Falstaff, Oh Kyle. my goodness. John Falstaff swears so, so much. much. Like what? I mean, and you can, if you think about it, we can almost expect it. But like, Wow. Like, not only did Shakespeare write Falstaff being as probably the second or third most complicated character in his canon, and the second or third, like, smartest and most well-developed character in his canon, such to the point where Queen Elizabeth actually had Shakespeare write another play just for Falstaff, but he also made him, I guess, a a heathen or a, a, what's the word I'm looking for, anti-religious... Um, his most profane character. Yes. Like, yeah. Was it really necessary for him to swear this frequently? I think, I guess so. I mean, well, think about it. In our modern media, I think that profanity comes up so often that we are almost immune to it. And yet, I think that, like, the characters who use the, the, the uh, comedians and commentators and actors and writers who use profanity the most pointedly and with the most uh, purpose and precision are the ones that we uh, that we adhere to the most. I mean, part of like our, our favorite times to watch Jon Stewart were when he lost his shit over something and when he went off on a profanity-laden rant where every single word had a purpose. So we're saying that then what this says about Falstaff is just how big certain events are to him that he has no other choice but to use a swear in the name of god like take the lord's name in vain in order to express his distaste or to express his hyperbolic level of emotion yeah i'm saying that i love that shakespeare wrote a character that was so markedly more profane than any of his other characters but he (laughs) did it so well that the queen herself requested more yep that's that's awesome hysterical to me now that you put it like that okay well the next segment is a game. Oh. And this is just a wonderful, wonderful part of the podcast where I get to spam Abby with a bunch of ridiculous questions that really say nothing about Shakespearean intelligence other than the knowledge of useless trivia. Yay, it's so, my favorite kind of trivia. Today's game is called Title Character. Mm. 
but it is not what you would think. So basically what I have done is I have written plot summaries of from the point of view of 10 different characters, right? These are all fairly minor characters in Shakespeare's plays, right? But I have reworked the plot of the play to be from this character's point of view, right? This minor character's point of view, and this is the plot of the play from, through their eyes, right? And what Abby has to do is figure out which character I'm talking about and create a play title based on that character. Like, for example, we know that Othello is actually Othello the Moor of Venice, and Richard III is actually the life and death of King Richard III. Mm -hmm. So Abby has to not only know the character's name, but incorporate that character's name creatively into an extended title of a Shakespeare play. So, the first plot description. A noble youth attempts to protect his sister from a mad villain with whom she is in love. After she breaks down and drowns herself, the hero dies nobly in a duel with the villain himself while attempting to avenge his fair sister. Wow, I don't think I know this one. Oh man, um, can you read it again, please? Yes. A noble youth attempts to protect his sister from a mad villain with whom she is in love. After she breaks down and drowns herself, the hero dies nobly in a duel with the villain while attempting to avenge his fair sister. That would be the tragedy of Laertes. Yes, the tragedy of Laertes, <laughs> who in his, you know, from his eyes is a hero. Of course he is. Oh my gosh, Laertes. <laughs> oh, we're going to have so much to talk about Laertes later. And this this is the fun of this game for me, is to, to look at the play through somebody else's eyes. Because in Absolutely. Laertes' eyes, Hamlet is the villain of the play. Um, n number two. After fleeing from a tyrant... A hero is tested by the rightful king until it is discovered that his loyalty to the kingdom is true. After he learns his family has been murdered, he bravely charges into battle and slays the tyrant. The Many Trials of Noble Macduff. Yes, I love it. All right, two for two. Number three. A hero cares for a shipwrecked youth, shielding him from harm and even lending him some money to spend on trinkets. When he is arrested for dueling on the youth's behalf, he is eventually brought to the court and learns that his dear friend is of noble birth and has married a countess, leaving the hero tragically alone. The Lamentable Romance of Antonio and Sebastian. The Lamentable Romance of Antonio and Sebastian. Well done. I, all of these are tragedies so yes, far. Oh my it? gosh, go on. Okay. A gentleman of noble birth is arranged to be married to a beautiful young girl. When his fiancée tragically dies, he bravely enters her tomb to say goodbye, wherein he is met and killed by a villainous young criminal. The Wondrous Brief Adventures of County Paris. <laughs> the Wondrous <laughs> Brief Adventures of County Paris. This is a fun game. I know, it's always fun. Ah, we have a female title character now. A kind-hearted heroine does all she can to help both her best friend and her troubled husband. But when she discovers she has been an instrument of her husband's monstrous plotting, she bravely exposes him to a general and a pack of guards, a decision which causes her to pay the ultimate price. Amelia, the true maid of Venice. The true maid of Venice, yes. yes. 
Number six. A loyal wife racks her brains and mutilates herself when her husband starts acting strange. She implores him to remember their marriage vows, and although she temporarily gets through to him, he becomes more and more immersed in violent dealings, causing her to die of grief. Portia, Cato's daughter, a tragedy in the classic fashion. Ah, very wordy title, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'm running out of titles. <laughs> All right, next one. A beautiful young girl spends her days fending off advances from a desperate boy, but her hopes are made high by the arrival of a strangely pretty boy to the neighborhood. She pursues her newfound crush to no avail. When she discovers this youth is not what he appeared to be, her hopes are dashed and she is forced to settle for the desperate country boy. The pastoral comedy of Phoebe of Arden. The pastoral comedy of Phoebe of Arden is correct. <laughs> Next, a gallant knight works tirelessly and fights bravely to bring honor to his country and kin. But his unmatched courage becomes his tragic flaw when a barbarous, lackadaisical prince unexpectedly transforms into a formidable warrior and tragically slays our hero on the battlefield. Go on, again, please. <laughs> okay. A gallant knight works tirelessly and fights bravely to bring honor to his country and kin, but his unmatched courage becomes his tragic flaw when a barbarous, lackadaisical prince unexpectedly transforms into a formidable warrior and tragically slays the hero on the battlefield. Uh, is that Hotspur Part 1? Hotspur Part 1. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. All right. We're on to number 9 okay. of 10. Okay. A high-ranking officer of the law discovers a plot against an innocent young female. He tries to expose the scheme, but is tragically misunderstood by the fools around him who don't have his facility with language. He is eventually triumphant and is rewarded for his heroic efforts and service to the public. The heroic efforts of Constable Dogberry. Yes! <laughs> Dogberry is the right answer. Alright, and the final one, number ten. A sage-like father imparts valuable words of wisdom upon his children, but when a troubled youth transforms into a dangerous threat to the crown, the heroic father must covertly observe him in order to protect the king and queen. The loyal patriot is tragically killed amidst an act of service by the treasonous villain himself. The historical, pastoral, tragical, comical story of Polonius. Yes, Many, many adjectives, but I will accept the answer. All of the adjectives. So, 10 for 10. Yay. No surprises there. Abby so is fun. just really good at these games. But I thought it would be fun to take a look at the plays through the eyes of some of the minor characters. So, like, so many of them were tragedies. I just, I just want to go home and hug something. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have picked... Minor characters for whom the play ends a little bit better. But, or, but maybe maybe plays don't end well for minor characters. Maybe they don't, especially maybe not Shakespeare plays. Last week we learned you don't want to be a title character in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. This week we you learned don't you don't want to be, be a minor, minor character. character. <laughs> Watch just, out, folks. It's all bad. Stay away from Shakespeare. <laughs> Man. All right. So the next segment today is Tyrant Producer. 
Yes. So longtime listeners of the podcast will know that Tyrant Producer is the segment where we imagine that a Tyrant Producer has offered you a budget of $3 million to produce your dream production of a Shakespeare play. The hitch is that you have to incorporate his wild and crazy production idea into your production in such a way that you are proud of it enough to put your name on it because it will be. Um, <laughs> this week... Uh, Kyle has done me the great honor of letting me be in control of the game, so I'm asking Kyle, in keeping with this week's theme of deus ex machina, or God from the Machine, the tyrant producer has offered you $3 million to produce the Shakespeare play of your choice, Hmm. but one character, one or more characters must be artificial intelligence, and one or more characters must be the creators of the artificial intelligence. What play do you pick? Who are the creators? Who is created? Ooh, okay. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the Tempest, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Prospero being the creator and perhaps Caliban and Ariel being the artificial intelligence. Now, the, the difficulty with that is that um, through the text, we know that Prospero has discovered Ariel and Caliban rather than created them out of nothing, why wouldn't Miranda be the created intelligence? Well, perhaps she is too, actually. Yeah, yeah that would be a lot of fun. Um, I th- Actually, now that you say that, like, now that you bring up the Tempest, I think I think Mira- Miranda being a cyborg makes her whole thing about discovering love and discovering being a woman. And I've never seen another of my sex. I've never seen a man like yeah, you thing. Yep. Really interesting. That does make that interesting. I think I like this, actually. Yeah. So the, the question is then... How do we make it blatantly obvious to the audience that she is a cyborg um, and completely unclear to Ferdinand? And my thought is maybe having, like, you know, part of an opening scene where Prospero is fixing her or something, like using a screwdriver or just something to make it clear to the audience that she's a robot, shuts something up, and then the audience knows that he has created this daughter through machinery. In fact, in fact, that whole opening scene where Miranda comes in and she's like, what have you done? I saw a boat sink. What was Mm -hmm. that about? And he goes on for pages and pages telling her the entire backstory of the play can be a programming upgrade scene where Mm. he's like, he's upgrading her programming. We are wild and crazy today, listeners. I'm so excited. Um, I actually came up with a different answer for this question, which was that I wanted to do Othello in which Iago is the created intelligence and his Mm. creator. I actually didn't come up with a good answer for who the creator was. I thought it would be either Emilia or Othello. Or Brabantio. Or Brabantio. But I like it being, uh, what I like about the idea of Iago being a uh, artificial intelligence is because whenever Iago is on stage, people call him Honest Iago. No one mm-hmm. ever has any doubts about Iago. And in fact, I think Amelia created him because she is the one who is the most shocked when he, she finds out he lied. Mm-hmm. She repeats it four or five times. You lied, you lied, you lied. And it becomes about... Um, it, if, if Iago is an artificial intelligence, then Iago's... Like the the scary question at the center of Iago is how he has become sentient and gone outside of his programming. Mm, interesting. And he's gone outside of his programming in a terrifying way. Counterpoint: Who else in the play has motive to do away with Othello? Oh. Mm. The answer is Brabantio, because Othello 
is dating or romantically involved with Brabantio's daughter. Dum dum dum. <gasps> and Brabantio has problems with this because racism. Yep. So he's created this intelligent, manipulative cyborg in order to eventually bring Othello to a downfall. That's interesting. Yes. Another play to which you could apply this is the one to which I think is most often applied strong concepts of X versus Y. And if you want to have cyborgs versus natural humans, no, Romeo and Juliet. put it in Romeo and yeah. Juliet. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. So who's created the cyborgs then is a real question. Is it the prince? Is it is it the members of the court in some way? Like, is it Mercutio who out of just his own genius and his own love of, of playing around created all of these... Uh, created the Montagues and to have a friend in Romeo and then all of a sudden tragically the the two houses fight and it is ultimately his undoing well I mean the sci-fi allegory of a sci-fi uh, the sci-fi allegory of a cyborg is an allegory for uh, slavery and for class differences mm-hmm. and for um, authority differences I think the character the character who fits being an artificial intelligence the most is Juliet and Juliet might have been created by her father Um, the nurse becomes the head technician who has had the most care and keeping of her and Mm -hmm. has the most pride in the way that she's grown up and is almost like a real girl. And she's the (laughs) character to whom they have... She's the character who has the most designs, the most programming imposed upon her. And so the idea of her breaking her programming to fall in love with a human, um, or at least a human not of her parents' choosing, if you want to make that the problem... I think that's the the way that it most easily that the concept most easily sits on the play. What do you think? I think that works. All right. Yeah. All right then. I think I've discovered my favorite answer. First, I wanted to touch on as you like it briefly because we talked about it. So there could be an interesting element to what if um, Orlando is the robot and Rosalind was his creator. I don't know how the text would work. I haven't thought about it in depth, but she is teaching him to love her. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Right? Oh, that's. But sweet. I think my answer to this after having sat on it for all this time, is Coriolanus. And I don't know Coriolanus at all, so tell me everything. Yes, so, I mean, I, I'm not super familiar with the, the entire plot of the play, but I know the basic theme is that Coriolanus is this great warrior who is named after um, his uh, his big victory in Corioli, or Corioli, mm-hmm. as it is pronounced sometimes. I'm not exactly sure the exact pronunciation, but he's this this great warrior who is has, um, you know, ruffled a few feathers around. But he he has gotten the job done. And he his his mother Volumnia is a, is a, also a large character in the play. Um, and basically, the theme is is treason. Uh, Coriolan, Coriolanus or Coriolanus, however you want to say it, um, ha- eventually uh, finds allegiance to another country and. You see his journey um, where I think there's this line where he says something about like this strange land feels more like home than my own country or, or something along those lines. So it would be interesting to have Volumnia, his mother, be actually his creator and watch tragically as he so like he is this amazing like uh, warrior and slays like hundreds of, of people on his own and is just this super powerful robot that eventually like gains this consciousness or gains this this feeling of of allegiance to somewhere else through like a maybe a malfunction or maybe um 
a, a sentient, a gaining of sentience, and eventually becomes a traitor to his own country and tragically changes sides. Great. Wow. We have spent a lot of time on this. Um, the next segment we are going to go to is the rhetorical device of the day, which is Pisma. And the definition of Pisma is when a character asks many different questions all requiring diverse answers. Uh, and Abby, you have at least one example of this in front of you, so would you like to tell us what it is? Yes, this is from Act 1, Scene 4 of King Lear. When King Lear uh, turns to Goneril and says, Does any here know me? Why, this is not Lear. Does Lear walk thus? Speak thus? Where are his eyes? Either his notion weakens or his discernings are lethargied. Ha! Sleeping or waking? Sure, it is not so. Who is it that can tell me who I am? Yes, so these, these are all different questions that are asked before somebody has a chance to answer one of them. And these questions all require very, very different answers. And what, what could be the purpose of ask, asking so many questions all at once? Or what could be the motivation for it? I think that, uh, at least in this instance, it's Lear's way of weakening the other person's argument, of p placing himself on the moral high ground, mm -hmm. uh, disorienting the other person, pointing at, uh, he's, he, I, I've heard arguments that there's no such thing as sarcasm in Shakespeare, and I think that that's strictly true, but that there's a certain sardonic, caustic humor to the reason that he asks these questions, is to point out how, uh, how disrespectful and low his daughter is being to an audience of the fool, of his soldiers, of her servants, of whoever's standing around watching this public altercation. Okay, cool. Um, another example I have in front of me is from Lady Macbeth in Macbeth. And she says famously, Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since? And wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? And then she says, from this time, such I account thy love. And then she has more pisma, where she says, Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valor as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemst the ornament of life, and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would, like the poor cat of the adage? I think this is more railing on his cowardice, right? The purpose of asking all of these questions that require diverse answers is that he cannot... From her point of view, he cannot answer any of these questions truthfully without realizing what a coward he is. It's to leave him without a leg to stand on. Exactly. So by asking these questions, she's really just taking his excuses away. There's one more uh, example that we hit upon, which does, I think, the opposite of Lady Macbeth and King Lear's use of Pisma, which is Rosalind in As You Like It, our favorite play of the day. Mm -hmm. Celia has come to her and, and told her that Orlando, her love, is also in the forest. And uh, Rosalind says, Alas the day, what shall I do with my doublet and hose? What did he when thou sawst him? What said he? How looked he? Where and went he? What makes he here? Did he ask for me? Where remains he? How parted he with thee? And when shalt thou see him again? Answer me in one word. So the question I have is if she says, answer me in one word, which is obviously hyperbole, but the fact that she says, answer me in one word, does that mean that all of these questions require diverse answers if she wants them all answered in one word? The, uh, yes, because the questions require diverse answers, even though she wants only one answer because she wants to be answered as 
quickly as yes, possible. Yes, she is being unreasonable Absolutely. by adding that last thing in. These questions, she is, through the definition of Pisma, asking questions that require diverse answers, and then tacking on an unreasonable demand for the answers to those questions. And so what's the dramatic function of Pisma in this instance? Boy, that's a tough one for me. Um, it's almost like she's trying to to show her concern or to show her her panic like in a, in a very theatrical way i think it's less it's less um i think it's less purposeful than that i think that the shakespeare that that, that the shakespeare i think that the playwright's use of pisma is to display her panic is to display how overwhelmed mm. with emotion she is is to sure. display her in a tizzy rosalind's purpose is that she doesn't have a leg to stand on, and she's trying to get one. She's trying to get her yeah, grounding. Yeah, she's trying, yeah. She is trying to sort through everything. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when, when I have seen this done, it's always a rapid-fire barrage of questions, and quite honestly, I think that's how it needs to be said. I think it, it would be weird to see this list of questions followed by long pauses after mm. each one while she waits for an answer and yeah. then proceeds. It's almost like she has a question that she immediately needs to know the answer to, but then after she's done asking it, she realizes that there is this more important, more pressing question that needs to be answered first. Exactly. And as she keeps coming, realizing these different issues and different problems, she has to ask each question in succession until perhaps she realizes how ridiculous she is being and ironically demands an answer in one word yeah could go that way too yeah so as with all these other rhetorical devices pisma clearly has multiple uses um and multiple dramatic functions but some of them that we have examined are probably the most common and some of the more interesting ones um one being to to get your grounding to get your footing underneath you one to sort of eliminate all possible excuses or, or to bombard someone. Um, it's just very interesting because the, the very fact that a character would ask so many different questions at once says something about their state of mind mm-hmm. and their heightened level of emotion and perhaps their irrational attitude in, in the moment. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, uh, the last segment of the day is listener questions listener questions yes i have thought about how to name this segment and i've not really come up with one i liked yet but one of the, the I possible we... names is that is the question hmm that is the question i like that one i also like answer in one word ah yep <laughs> answer in one word we'll be ironic with it today um so the first question i want to answer is from andy mclean on twitter uh, his tag is at one, number one, Andy McLean. And he says, I've heard some fanciful nonsense about William Shakespeare actually being Italian. What's your take on it? What is your take on it, Abby? Well, you could go a number of ways with it, I think. I mean, the Shakespearean authorship question is one that's been debated for years and years and years. That's the first time. And so my question for Andy would be, uh, is the fanciful nonsense to which he's referring the idea that William Shakespeare himself was an Italian man, or that the plays of William Shakespeare were written by somebody else who was Italian. Mm. Uh, I think either way, uh, 
I think in the instance, in the instance that he's referring to the idea that the plays were not written by William Shakespeare, I, I think that um, I have very strong feelings about that. I'm a Stratfordian through and through. I, <laughs> I believe wholeheartedly that yes, all of these brilliant plays were written by one man, and there's a reason it hasn't been doubled in 400 years, and that's because he was brilliant. Um, but if the idea is that Shakespeare's heritage is Italian heritage, I think that it's not necessarily fanciful nonsense. We do have only, I think I read Bill Bryson's uh, biography of Shakespeare, and I believe he posits that we have only six documents, six historical documents that positively confirm the existence of a man named William Shakespeare. So it's possible that there are gaps in his family tree that could be filled with Italian heritage. Mm -hmm. But at present, there is no known evidence that I'm aware of that supports that. Here's a question I have related to this, and this doesn't really prove anything, but Romeo and Juliet, mm -hmm. Othello, mm -hmm. Merchant of Venice, Two Gentlemen of Verona, what do these plays all have in common? Italian locales. Yes. And in the case of Romeo and Juliet and Othello particularly, like, what does it say that two of what we would probably describe as his five best plays or five most popular plays take place in Italy. Is there something to say that perhaps he identifies with Italy more than uh, the other locales? Maybe. Um, I think that it's more indicative of the zeitgeist of the time, that the books that were being read in, uh, the books that he was getting his hands on, the books that were popular, the learning was coming out of Italy. That was what was inspiring him. Hmm. Um, it's also worthy of note that while the locales are often, uh, the locales are rarely in England, unless they are histories, the idioms and speech patterns of the characters are all inherently very English. Sure. Uh, he writes British characters no matter where, in fact, his characters are from. Cool. Well, there's your answer, Andy. Take that. Yeah. Um, so the next question I have uh, is from... A buddy of mine, Jim Voigt, who says, Mark Rylance compared the performance of Shakespeare text to rap music. Thoughts and extrapolations on this idea could be fun. Um, what do you think, Kyle? I think it is fun because, I mean, so right now, obviously, Hamilton is a huge, huge phenomenon. And the, the idea of compressing that much language uh, in into that kind of a story is a huge draw for audiences. And the fact that there are so many words and the fact that they're all used in such poetry is an added element to the telling of a really great story. Mm -hmm. And Shakespeare does a very similar thing with his language, right? I mean, he writes in verse. He uses poetic structure. He has a lot of clever poetic devices in his language. And... Um, the reason I think Mark Rylance said this, because I, th I believe I saw the quote somewhere, is that he believes that the reason Shakespeare plays takes so long nowadays, and it's interesting to note that an example of this, Romeo and Juliet, the prologue, um, has a line in it which, but their children's end, not could remove, is now the two hours traffic of our stage. And sure. No production of Romeo and Juliet I've ever seen has been under two hours. Sure. Without significant, significant cutting. And perhaps that means that the language was meant to be spoken a lot faster than it's being. Like, we, in, in as a contemporary society, are so used to 
movies where there's dramatic pause to tell the action and and all these actors want to to sit deep in this language and feel it and mm-hmm. and be able to express it um and and it's just I, you see so many actors take pauses in the wrong place like one of the things I, I i get on my clients about is when they have a midline punctuation mark like a period in the middle of a line of verse you don't sit on the sentence and then continue on to the next one it is a line of verse you have to find a reason to finish the th- the one thought and then pick up the next thought quickly enough to justify the fact that there's punctuation in the middle of a line as opposed to the end of it so perhaps shakespeare is meant to be spoken a lot more quickly than we do speak it and what do you think well i think um I think that it's a fascinating point, and I think that there's, I, I don't think Mark Rylance is at all wrong, um, So, which I'm sure Mark Rylance was waiting for my opinion on what he has to say, um, which is that the, the, the use of metrical language, of, uh, of rhythmic and poetic language, carries an emotional and psychological sense, conveys an emotional and psychological sense to the listener that prose language might lack. Um, I was recently taking a, a class at the Pearl Conservatory from Dominic Cusker, and we spent a lot of time talking about scansion and iams and trochees and spondees and, and what it means when Shakespeare is keeping with his iambic heartbeat and what it means when he breaks it and, mm. and how you're supposed to feel. And um, it, it's very much like when you're listening to, uh, when you're listening to a hip hop track and it's keeping on the same rhythm and then suddenly it breaks it and repeats a rhyme and shakes you out of it and it, it raises your heartbeat and it brings you along and it sucks you in. It, it's, it's a, um, the rhythm of the language is another tool for conveying an emotional and psychological sense to the audience. Uh, I think that that's a brilliant, that's a brilliant allegory to pull. Um, so yeah, rap and Shakespeare, definitely close. Cool. Well, there are your thoughts and extrapolations, Jim. Um, Louis Paulus asks, to be or not to be? That is the question. Mm, yes. I say to be. I say not to be. All right. Well, we agree to disagree. Moving on. Uh, a friend of mine, Evan Vogel, asks, what can teachers do differently to help students grow a passion for his work? I'll be doing Romeo and Juliet next year, and the kids are already moaning and groaning about it. And, you know, we've gotten a couple of questions about how to make Shakespeare more accessible to students. Uh, But this question in particular fascinates me, because if the students are already going in with a bad attitude about it, how do you reverse that as a teacher in high school? I have a friend whose name is Tom Wilmorth, and Tom Wilmorth is a fabulous playwright who wrote a uh, Shakespeare parody play called Shakespeare's King Ficus, and if you're a Shakespeare nerd at all, you should go out and buy a copy and read it, because you'll laugh your face off. But uh, Tom also teaches English, and he told me once that when he teaches Romeo and Juliet on the first day, he has the students read Mercutio, Benvolio, and Romeo out loud, and he puts a bell on his desk, and he tells them, I'm going to ring it every time there's a dirty joke. And every time the bell goes off, he watches the kids lean forward and look and reread it and then sees the light bulbs go off and they start giggling and laughing and losing mm. it. And from that day, like that, I think that's such a simple 
a simple way to uh, shake up a, a kid's expectation that Shakespeare isn't going to be fun or sure. that Shakespeare isn't relevant. Well, and let's face it, like, if we're teaching Shakespeare in school, especially, let's say, if we're teaching Romeo and Juliet in schools, you, you have to accept the fact that it's not a G-rated play. Totally. Right? And There's a lot of dirty jokes in it. And you have to lean over, lean into making the teenagers sound like teenagers. Because mm-hmm. I think when kids think about Shakespeare and they get bored about it before they've seen it, they're thinking of grown-ups in tights declaiming yeah, uh, yeah. High, high verse language that they don't understand. So, uh, Evan, one of the very simple ways to go about this is to get the kids excited for the dirty jokes. But... If we want to go about educating our children's youth in another way, what are some alternate ways to go about this? And it, it, even just Shakespeare in general, let's like not just apply this to Romeo and Juliet. How do you get students excited about the language? Take them to the play first. Take sure. them to the play. Like, I, I think. Or have them watch one of the one of the better movie productions of it, maybe. Maybe, but yeah. if you possibly can get them to a live performance first, I think it is the best and strongest introduction to Shakespeare a person and especially a teenager can have. Yes, I think that's great. Um, what about in instances where that's not in the budget or there's no production of Romeo and Juliet going on locally? How might we go about it uh, in those circumstances? Well, then you certainly can turn to. Um, you can turn to filmed productions. You can turn to um, there. There might even if there is not a full production of Romeo and Juliet in your city, there might be a local theater group that offers an educational Shakespeare program where they will work with your school and bring Shakespeare into your school. Mm-hmm. And yep. um, that's true. I, I think that the key takeaway here is that Shakespeare should be approached. Uh, as material for performance and not material for study. Well, and you know, that gets me on something else. What if when you're introducing the idea that you're going into Romeo and Juliet, what if you start to cast it within the room and not just give one student Romeo and one student Juliet, but like talk about reading scenes and, you know, pair students up to to start reading these scenes together in class by Mm -hmm. themselves or, or like assign them homework to... To prepare a scene to bring in for class and even if they're not actors they're gonna have fun reading the language out loud and in playing off of each other i don't know i think i think if like i'm thinking back when i was a teenager and my teacher was going to teach me something that i didn't think i had much use for if the one way to guarantee i wasn't going to do the work is if they assigned me group homework because <laughs> like i was and in a lot of respects still am a very independent person and like the one thing I detested the most out of my entire pre-college schooling career was group assignments. Because um, invariably, invariably, I ended up doing all or most of the work myself, or there was group politics, or there right. was, you know? So okay. if, it's a thing they're, if it's a thing that they're already not excited about, you have to get them excited about it first before they're willing to sure. go home and okay. continue being excited. So what if Evan uh, casts his students in a play by act and prepares them to read the play aloud during a series of classes. Like he says, okay, for act one, you're Romeo, you're Juliet, you're Mercutio, and sort of helps, you know, reassign the roles for each act so that each student has their day, has their experience with a language. I think that that's definitely a possibility. Also, one other thought I have is there's got to be a local community theater around that does shows sometimes, and even if there's not a production of Romeo and Juliet, 
going on, I guarantee somewhere within a five mile vicinity of you, there is a SAFD certified fight choreographer who yes. you can bring into your classroom to teach the kids a little bit about sword fighting, which oh is a God. very prevalent theme in Romeo and Juliet. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, lean into the exciting thing f- things first. Mm-hmm. Hook them with the dirty jokes and sword fighting and then bring up the love poetry and the uh, and, and the dramatic structure later. Yep. Bring in a couple of your friends who are actors to, to act out the balcony scene. It's a very famous scene. Let them watch that. The... Ring the bell not only every time there's a dirty joke, but every time Romeo and Juliet might kiss. You know, let the kids have their fun. Like, mm-hmm. ooh. Tell the kids to raise their hands every time a grown-up disregards what a teenager is saying because <laughs> they're young. Yeah, so have them read the play aloud in class and have like figure out different ways to get them engaged based on... Because, I mean, this, this is a very relatable play, especially for kids this age. Mm-hmm. Juliet's 13, Romeo's 16 or 17. And for me, the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet isn't that two people are in love and their families hate each other. The tragedy of Romeo and Juliet is two teenagers need help and none of the grown-ups around will listen to them. Mm-hmm. Like the, And the two who do give them the worst advice. It's a play that could have been solved... At so many stops along the way, if Juliet's father had just said, okay, you don't have to marry Paris, let's take a deep breath and think about mm. this. If Juliet's mother had listened to her, if Romeo's friends had stopped, like, I think, I think leaning into the teenage tragedy is a great way to make it seem uh, viable and contemporary. Sure. So get the kids excited to do something participatory rather than just tell them they're going to read it. You know, assign it, get them excited about reading these roles aloud in class, but also get them excited about the different ways you are going to help them participate. And the sword fighting thing. The sword fighting thing. Yeah, the sword fighting thing. Great. So I hope that helps uh, answer your question, Evan. And listeners, I hope you have gotten a lot of uh, useful information and useless information out of this podcast. We provide plenty of both. Mm-hmm. And like you're always welcome to tweet us back and tell us what you agree with, what you don't agree with, what you would have said. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, get involved. I mean, we know by now, based on the stats from SoundCloud and iTunes, that we have a reasonable listener base, and we, we are excited with that. And um, just, yeah, get more involved. Uh, tweet us listener questions. Tweet us responses. Tweet us things in the news that you want to hear us talk about. We're glad um, that you are listening to this podcast right now. It means a lot to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great. Well, Abby, would you like to end with any plugs or tags about yourself? You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at AbbyWild or at AbbyWild.com. If you do check out my website, please click on the Coaching and Classes link to find out more about private coaching with me. Also, I'm going to be teaching Taking the Stage for Young Performers, a class for 9 to 14-year-olds who are beginner to intermediate acting students starting this June in New York City. I'd love to see you there. Kyle? For myself, I'm Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. You can find me on Facebook as NYShakesGuy or Twitter or Instagram as at NYShakesGuy. You can check out my videos on YouTube. You can search Kyle Downing, parentheses NYShakesGuy. If you have listener questions or are interested in Shakespeare coaching, you can send me an email at NYShakesGuy at gmail.com and keep an eye out for future episodes of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and rate and review the podcast. And for links to all of these things, you can check out my website, 
www.kyledowning.com slash nyshakesguy.html. We would like to thank our most commonly used resources, shakespeare-monologues.org, opensourceshakespeare.org, and of course, the Art in Shakespeare, which we frequently use as a reference for the podcast. For Abby Wilde, I'm Kyle Downing. Thank you very much for listening, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.